1973, a freshman in high school tried out for the Cherry Hill East High School varsity baseball team. He had played Little League his entire life and was good. His father was not only his coach, but was the administrator of the entire Little League association in his area. His mom ran the snack bar for every single Little League game of his life growing up. Baseball was completely in his blood. It was part of his life. He did not make the varsity team his freshman year in high school. He didn't even make the junior varsity team. Relegated to playing on a third string all-freshman team with guys who were playing baseball for the very first time in their lives was humiliating. But he worked hard, and then he had a good showing that summer in Little League again. And he came back his sophomore year ready to try again. And he did not make the varsity team again his sophomore year. His junior year, he finally made the team but saw almost no playing time. So when he became a starter on the varsity team his senior year, it seemed like his high school career was going to be anticlimactic at best. But the records he set that year for single-game strikeouts, total season strikeouts, winning percentage in ERA, managed to gain him all-conference honors and a small partial scholarship to a state school. He played no baseball his freshman year in college and was academically ineligible his sophomore year. So he dropped out of school and hitchhiked home. His parents enrolled him in summer school to bring his grades up and convinced him to rejoin the team his junior year. That year, he pitched himself on the All-Mid-American Conference All-Star team. And during his junior year, the only full season he played in college, he was 6-2 and with an ERA of 2.26. He had such a good showing that the Dodgers picked him up in the 17th round of the draft. The scouting report on him said he has poor control, a weak fastball, Throws the curveball incorrectly. He's rattled easily and has a questionable makeup. He spent four years in the minors and played a winter, a year of winter ball in the Dominican Republic, but finally got called up in the majors at the end of the 83 season, where he had a lackluster showing. Despite that, he managed to make the 84 LA Dodgers team. He finished the year <coughs> with an 11 and 8 record. And uh, a 2.66 ERA. In 85, he led the league in winning percentage and had an ERA of 2.03. By 87, he was an all-star. And in 88, he led the league in almost every category, including the record for consecutive scoreless innings pitched. That year, he was the unanimous recipient of the Cy Young Award and won a golden glove, a gold glove, for the best fielding pitcher. He was also the championship MVP, and the World Series MVP for the 88 season. Anybody know who that is? Doug? Earl Hershiser. He played 18 seasons of Major League Ball and retired one of the most decorated pitchers in history. And he didn't make the team his freshman or sophomore year. Didn't make the team his freshman or sophomore year in college. He got picked up deep in the draft. I forgot my clicker. i got to get it over here. <clears throat> got picked up so deep in the draft that nobody was looking for pitchers. Nobody picks up a pitcher in the 17th round. And yet he turned out to be one of the greats. Let me get us set up here. History's full of these stories. Michael Jordan getting cut from his high school team. Kurt Warner getting cut from Green Bay and getting a job stocking shelves while he played arena football, eventually playing Europe ball, just to come back and become a Hall of Fame NFL quarterback. 
We love these stories because <clears throat> the guys prove everybody else wrong. Because who hasn't felt the fear and hope of hearing the phrase, let's pick teams? It doesn't matter if it's a pickup game in the driveway or a game of charades at a dinner party. The process of another human being measuring the room to see who's the best, who's the brightest, who's the most capable and compatible. The process of being weighed and measured is highly emotional. The pride of an early round draft pick for driveway basketball is important. The, uh, the disappointment of knowing that nobody wants you to guess which animal they're imitating can cause a wholly disproportionate amount of pain. So in the spirit of this, I titled tonight's message, Pick a Team. And tonight's scripture reading is a bit long, so I'm going to allow you to stay seated as we read it. But please listen with reverence to the Word of God. I'm going to turn around and read it off the screen so I can make sure I'm following along. One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him and listened to the Word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. In one of the villages, Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. When the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Then Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened. He said, go and tell the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster. And vast crowds came to hear him and preach and to be healed of their diseases. Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. One day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all of Galilee and Judea as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Some of the men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof and took off some of the tiles. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, Young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, Who does, this, who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe. And they praised God, explaining We have seen amazing things today. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw the tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. 
Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples, Why do you eat with such scum? Jesus answered them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. This is the Word of the Lord. Well, this is a tricky passage tonight that we're dealing with because the lectionary has given us way more than we could ever handle in one sermon. And there is so much rich theology in this chapter that that we could do an entire series on any one of these stories. But we're going to have to stick with kind of a flyover picture at these first people that Jesus picks in Luke's narrative. See, up until this point, Luke has told us about Jesus' birth and genealogy. He's told us about John the Baptist. We've even gotten to meet Satan in the wilderness with Jesus. But the majority of what's been written down are statements like he, he dealt with crowds of people. He taught often in the synagogues. He, he ministered to and healed a lot of people. Very generic terms up until this point. But in chapter 5 that we're in tonight, Luke starts to name names. And he gets more deeply into this crashing collision between the Jesus story and real human stories. And these are very important interactions because if you remember, we're talking about the long-awaited Messiah. I spent last week reading prophecies that the Jews were expecting from the Messiah. And one phrase that kept coming to my mind was big shot. They were expecting a big shot. I mean, the prophecies are kind of all over the place, but listen to this one. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make decisions based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word. And one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the heir of David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him. And the lands where he lives will be a glorious place. They're expecting major impact. The Messiah is definitely going to have a seat at the table of power. He's a major league MVP to say the least. So of course, this first century Jews would expect the Messiah to step on the scene and immediately start rubbing shoulders with power players. They would expect Jesus to co-opt the wealthy and politically connected. They would expect him to leverage his relationships with the famous and influential. And most of all, they would expect him... to draw support from those with military power and strength. See, no Jew is expecting a magician. They believed in the power of God, and God fighting for them was part of their narrative. But the Messiah was supposed to be the son of David, and David wielded a sword. He, He led Israel covered in blood more often than not. His fame started with people boasting about the tens of thousands of people that he had slain. And it wasn't just David. He had an army of his own 
long before he was king. The Bible talks about his top 30 soldiers like they were celebrities, like they were the absolute famous people of his day. And David wasn't the only one. Nehemiah had come to deliver the people and rebuild the wall around the city. But he did it with the permission and the money of a foreign overlord. The Maccabees, who had been the most recent deliverers, were politically connected before their revolt. And they were the ones who actually married the kind of royal throne to the high priestly office. In essence, blending power and religion in Israel. In short, the Messiah may or may not do miracles like Moses or the prophets, but he was definitely going to be a man of power. You would find the Messiah by his authority and by the team that he builds. So these first few names that Luke shares are very important because a wandering rabbi teaching and healing people does not a Messiah make. The Messiah is going to need a dream team to accomplish everything that God has prophesied. So tonight we're just going to kind of take a snapshot, a quick snapshot of each of these people that Luke brings to our attention in this chapter. Remember in this series we're calling it Surprising Savior and we're trying to look with compassion at the people who miss Jesus, who miss the Messiah when He showed up. So let's examine these players as, as if we don't already know Jesus and who He turns out to be. Maybe let's just imagine we're on the playground and somebody yells, let's pick teams. Jesus' first pick is Peter. And the thing that I love to imagine about this passage is why they meet. Jesus being pressed up against the water by the crowd, and he sees a boat. And so Jesus just steps on and asks the owner to push out a bit. And everybody that visits this location says that the hills form a natural amphitheater. And if you get out on a boat, you can actually speak to the entire valley in a fairly normal speaking voice. And so Jesus is taking advantage of the geography as well as Peter's boat. But wouldn't it be awesome if we got to heaven and we found out that Jesus picked Peter for his boat? Like when you're in high school and you've got that one friend who has a car and you, he's got to be in the group, otherwise your whole crew is like stranded. Like, I mean, when you think of all the stories of, of sea crossings and, and water sites, what if, what if Jesus just needed a ride? But the one thing we do know is that if Peter's a fisherman, he's a failed disciple. Jewish kids were sent to school at a very young age and they were expected to memorize great deals of Torah. And at about between five and seven, the best and the brightest were asked to advance on to do more schooling. The rest were sent home to develop a trade. And they would go to school for a little while longer and then the best and the brightest would be asked to go on to the next level and those who didn't make the cut would go home and join their father's trade. And then finally, after that level, if you were amongst the absolute best, a rabbi would come and he would touch you on the shoulder and he would say, come follow me. That was a formal invitation from a rabbi to not only be taken into a deeper understanding of Torah, but to also learn the way of the rabbi. It was every Jewish boy's dream. So the fact that Peter is fishing tells us that he was not chosen. No rabbi had tapped Peter and invited him into a deeper understanding of Torah. And this was, this was not like a disgrace. Very few were actually chosen. It was way more common to develop a vocation than it was to become a rabbinical disciple. There's absolutely no shame in Peter having a vocation in Israel. It's, it's just simply unremarkable. 
So when Jesus gives Peter and three fishermen the tap, his choice only makes sense to us because we stand on this side of history. In the time, it wasn't even a 17th round draft pick. This is the bottom of the barrel. But he goes in Jesus' first round, and Jesus moves on that day with a crew, with Facebook followers and or Facebook friends and Instagram followers, however it works. And these are guys who left everything to follow him. So truly devoted peeps. So Jesus and his new gang travel to a village, and the reception there isn't exactly first class. It says that Jesus is met by a leper who stops him, bows down before him, and begs to be healed. In fact, the, the, the passage says the man asked for two things, and Jesus' answer is actually kind of amazing. And if we had time, we would park here for like an hour, but we don't, so I'm just going to give you like a little piece of it, and you can mull it over at home. But the leper asked, the leper asked Jesus to be healed and cleansed. And we hear that as two different ways of saying the same thing, but no Jew would see it that way. So Jesus touches him and heals him miraculously. That's request number one. But then he tells him uh, this. He says, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. So Jesus uses a miracle to answer the first request and he uses scripture to answer the second. I really wish we could unpack that, but we can't tonight. Tonight we've got to be satisfied with the exchange itself. We must be satisfied with the image of this cosmic big shot Messiah touching an untouchable. We have to be satisfied with the simple human contact between a man who probably has forgotten what human touch feels like and another man who had touched angels. What's probably easiest for us to picture and sympathize with would be the shock on the fisherman's face when Jesus goes to do this. Because ultimately he's putting himself and all of them at risk of catching a well-known communicable disease. I mean, it's really early in this movement to risk catching leprosy. I don't even like shaking hands with somebody if they have poison ivy. And the way Luke makes it sound is it's like there's crowds of people to minister to. So why would Jesus pick this guy? And we're not given the answer to that question, but his next pick is no less confusing. He teaches in a house that's packed with people. No one else can get in. No one else has access to the Messiah except for the one paralyzed guy and his buddies. And the one thing we, we don't have any idea where this takes place, but the one thing we can be sure of is it is not Luke's home because he's way too casual about guys tearing the roof off to get this guy in. So we do know Luke's not a homeowner because no homeowner is going to be okay with somebody ripping the roof off. If ever our church gets crowded and you want in, don't tear the roof off. We'll start a second service if we have to. Don't, don't do that. But the next person Luke brings to our attention is a guy that's so helpless he can't even get himself to Jesus. We can probably assume he was humiliated. It would have been embarrassing enough to meet Jesus while laying in a bed, but to be dropped in the middle of a huge crowd. Everybody's eyes are on your inability. And the crazy part is, for the first time, 
Luke introduces us to the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law. He hasn't mentioned them yet in his book until this moment. So on this night, Jesus has the ears of the power players. This is the night he has the influential. In chapter 4, he tells us that Jesus has been speaking in the synagogues. Tonight, they came to Jesus. They came to him to hear him speak in a house. So why do you risk it? For a guy that's too helpless, why do you risk offending those people for a guy that's too helpless to even walk through the front door? And we aren't given the answer to that question. And believe me, if I had time, I would stay right here and unpack this because there's some great theology in this, in this little section. If I had time, we would talk about how when the Pharisees and, and teachers of religious law said to Jesus, who is this guy? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive. They're not talking about forgiveness the way we're talking about forgiveness. If we had time, we would park right here for one second and we would talk about how when they talk about forgiveness, they're thinking of Moses and the Levitical sacrifices. They're thinking about temple and Torah. So if we weren't so rushed for time, we would stop right here to talk about how, about how when, when they say forgiveness, they mean uh, this outlined process that God has made in the Torah that they, that they uh, can define exactly. Seriously, we would stop right now if we had time and we would talk about how the, their favorite part of this process was that they got to control it. They knew everything God required for forgiveness and they were the overseers of that. So when they say, hey, only God can forgive... I, I kid you not, if we had time, we would stay here for a minute and talk about how when they say only God can forgive, what they mean is God has told us how he forgives and we're in charge of that. God has chosen us to oversee this act of forgiveness. If I had time, we would totally talk about those things, but I don't. So we're going to move on. Tonight we're left wondering why Jesus would gamble offending religious leaders for a paralytic nobody and his vandalistic friends. And we stand here wondering why Luke would bring us this story of all the stories. And while we're looking, he brings up the strangest pick in Jesus' ragamuffin team. As Jesus was leaving, he sees Levi the tax collector and he says, I pick Levi. And what makes this story the most fun is Luke includes this tiny little story, this tiny little detail that kind of changes everything. Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. He's still sitting in his booth. This isn't a guy with a past. This is a guy with a present. This isn't somebody who used to, who used to take advantage of his brothers and sisters for a usurping over. This is a guy that's currently doing that. Levi's actively receiving taxes from his own people. And here's what's important to a first century Jew. The Messiah was supposed to come and deliver them from Rome. And here he is befriending somebody who's supporting the people he's supposed to deliver the people from. Most Jews would have rather hugged the leper than Levi. And Jesus doesn't just pick him, he put, makes him a starter. He says, come and be my disciple. We're pretty sure Levi wrote the book of Matthew. His name has changed to Matthew, and he's pretty sure he wrote the first gospel in the, in the Bible. Most Jews considered a tax collector to be unforgivable. 
Because according to the Torah, these guys are stealing money from their people. And the, the Torah outlined road to forgiveness, if you steal, is to pay it back plus 20%. Well, tax collectors had to spend most of their money, send most of their money to Rome. And so they didn't have the money to pay back everything plus 20%. And so there was no road to forgiveness for them. So to a Jew, this guy is unforgivable, forever unforgivable. And this is the guy who Jesus picks. And thank God the Pharisees call him out on it. They say, why do you eat with such scum? I'm glad they asked this question because this is what leads to Jesus' answer, which sheds light on this whole chapter. So Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. I don't even feel like I need to add anything to that. Why did Jesus pick a completely unremarkable fisherman and an utterly untouchable leper and a fully helpless paralytic and a totally unforgivable tax collector? Because that's why he came. Which leaves us with something to think about. Because if Jesus is who we think he is today, and these are the people that he picked for his team, on what grounds could we ever exclude anybody? Race, gender, their past sins, their present sins, their political affiliations, whether or not they have all their theology just right. Where would we get the grounds to exclude someone? I love when this happens, but while I was studying for this sermon this week, I got a text from Esther's mom. And she sent me a note from her cousin. She had no idea what I was studying or what I was looking into. She just thought it was interesting, so she sent me this note. It's from her cousin, who is a missionary in a heavily Muslim area. Glenn Roseberry is his name. He wrote this, Islam is not the enemy, but the mission field. But actually, many former Muslims are doing a better job at sharing Jesus than most calling themselves longtime Christians. Have you heard what God is doing? Or do you only react to stereotypes and certain news sources? God is moving, but it's not on CNN or Fox. If you are informed by the secular media, and yes, even the alternative media, then others are deciding what you should know, influencing your perceptions of reality and in many ways controlling what you believe. Did you know that in some Muslim countries people are coming to faith in Jesus at a faster rate than in America? Did you know that one illiterate former Muslim lady has memorized large portions of the Bible and fostered and started dozens of house churches? Did you know that there's a former Muslim businessman who went blind? then came to Jesus, and he goes into Muslim strongholds blind to share his faith alone. And he has planted eight house churches. In my little sphere, this is my mother-in-law's cousin, I know of two former imams that are now working to extend the kingdom of God. God is at work in the Muslim world. Muslim communities are actually asking for someone to come and tell them about Jesus. Stop looking at burqas and bombs, propaganda posing as news, and begin to see God's mighty hand. 
Abandon your loyalties to the kingdoms of this world and political solutions. The king is at work in his people, extending his kingdom in the Muslim world. Stop treating them as enemies, reflecting only on the news feeds of tragedy and reflect instead on God's work amongst the people he sent his son to die for, Muslims. Your prayers are more powerful than the U.S. Army, Navy, and Air Force. God is able. Russ, he didn't say Marines. So yeah, I knew you caught it. I, I, didn't, I didn't take that out. I asked you last week not to miss the Messiah this Lenten season. I said he's way easier to miss than you might think. So what if the reason we miss him is because he's busy using and touching and forgiving and calling the people that we wouldn't bother to look at? This has happened in my life. God has shown me more grace as I've worked with the homeless community in Kansas City than in almost anything else. And when I first started working with the homeless, I did it because that's what Christians are supposed to do. If there's like an arrogant, wrong way to do right, that's what I was doing. I was basically saying, hey, I clearly have my life together. You clearly don't. Let me help you. And then I met Bob. Bob's this little tiny guy with severe PTSD. And he had come to the church for years and had gotten clean. And the church wound up renting him this tiny little shack not far from the church building so he could walk to services. And it was all Bob could do to basically just care for himself, his tiny little house, and get to church and tend his garden. He had a gorgeous garden. And then one day Bob came to me with a bag full of (laughs) I had a feeling that was going to happen, with a bag full of vegetables. And he said, I have been thinking about you all week. I prayed for you every single day this week. So when I picked these yesterday, I figured they were probably for you. <laughs> it's a bag full of lumpy carrots and you know, misshapen tomatoes and a cucumber and a whole week's worth of prayers, more than I had ever prayed for Bob. See, I thought I was there. <laughs> I thought I was there to minister to Bob and I had it all backwards. Bob gave me way more than I ever gave him. In 2 Samuel, the Bible outlines David's mighty men, his most famous warriors. It starts like this. These are the names of David's mightiest warriors. The first was Jashobim, the Hakamite who was a leader of the three, the three mightiest warriors amongst David's men. He once used a spear to kill 800 enemy warriors in a single battle. This chapter goes on like this, naming guy after guy and all their amazing exploits, including verse 18. It kind of nails it. Abishai, son of Zeruiah, the brother of Joab, was the leader of the 30. He once used a spear to kill 300 enemy warriors in a single battle. It was by such feats that he became as famous as the three. As famous as the three. These are the rock stars of David's day. This is a messianic crew, if there has ever been one. 
But I love the way David's team started. This is from a whole book before that, early in David's life. 1 Samuel 22. So David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullah. Soon his brothers and all his other relatives joined him there. Then the others began coming, men who were in trouble or in debt or just discontented until David was captain of about 400 men. In trouble, in debt, or just discontented. You know you're starting something good when the only people you can draw to your cause are those who are in trouble, in debt, or just darn discontented. Sounds like OTCC. So along comes Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah, and he's building a new crew. And most Jews were expecting the mighty soldiers of 2 Samuel because they forgot how his men started in 1 Samuel. So how do we respond to this? First, I would love for you to do a Lenten experiment with me. Try this for this week and maybe even extend it on out until Easter. But every time your spouse or significant other does something stupid or something to make you angry or something selfish or forgetful, I want you to try and see that very action as the thing that draws Jesus to them. If your kids have gone crazy and they push you to the brink of murder, I'll just stop there. With disobedience and disrespect, I want you to stop for a second and realize that that is exactly why Jesus picks them for his team. When your employees or business partners or coworkers are lazy or incompetent or impetuous, realize that the very thing repelling you is drawing Jesus. See, Jesus made it clear that the reason he came was for brokenness. He's attracted to the broken. What if the only reason the presence of Jesus was in your life was because he likes hanging out with the people that are driving you crazy? If your spouse or kids or coworkers or even your extended family are all jacked up, if they weren't all jacked up, they wouldn't need Jesus. They certainly wouldn't need you. What I'm asking is for a gratitude experiment. Find a way to be grateful for the things that make you crazy. Maybe even pick up a journal or start a memo in your phone and kind of record the process. But over the next couple of weeks, try to see the things that make you crazy and others as the very thing that God is using to allow grace to walk into your life. That's response number one. There's two. The second is simply this. I would like for you to stand in front of the mirror and do that same thing. What makes you angry with yourself? What makes it hard to pick up your eyes and look yourself in the mirror? What regrets sit heavy on your shoulders? What wounds are you hiding? Maybe you're like Peter and you just feel unremarkable. You feel like a completely ordinary nobody. Or maybe you feel like the leper. You feel unclean and untouchable, lonely and isolated. Like the best parts of you have literally died and fallen off and nobody wants what's left. Or maybe you feel like the paralytic and you feel 
helpless, incapable of doing anything to help your situation, destined to rely on others for your survival. What on earth could you bring to the table? Or maybe you feel like Levi. Hated and written off. And you might even deserve that. You'd love to talk about your past, but you can't because your past is still present. You'd love to sing, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. But you can't because you're still lost and blind. Whatever shortcomings you find in the mirror, try to see that as the very reason Jesus picks you. That shortcoming that you're disgusted by is why he's here. If you didn't have that thing that you're trying so hard to get rid of, he might not bother with you. When I used to preach to teenagers, I'd say all the time, the all-powerful maker of the universe who holds all time and everything that is in his hand is out of his gourd in love with you. He is so crazy about you, he's doing stupid things like dying on a cross rather than be away from you. If the coolest being that has ever lived is that crazy about you, how stupid is that kid at school that doesn't like you? That's what I used to say. Or how dumb is that guy who dumped you? Well, that same rationale works in the mirror. If God loves you so much, who are you to think you're not enough? Do you know something God doesn't know about you? This is Lent. This isn't the season we ignore our sins or pretend like they aren't there. During Lent, we face our sins openly. But as we own our sins, let's recognize that that very weakness is why He picks us. This is what I want you to stick in your head. If you were who you're trying so hard to pretend like you are, you would have probably wound up on the wrong side of the room the night Jesus healed the paralytic. So I guess what I'm asking is, this Lent season, be you. Be real. We had a men's gathering a couple of years ago when we were meeting at La Coretta once a month and we were going around the table and answering the question how we were doing physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And we were all playing it pretty safe. I think I gave like one of those humble brags. You know what I mean? Like those, those things where you use a confession to be totally douchey. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm just working so hard for God right now. I'm not sure I'm giving enough time to my wife and kids. Like, I don't think it was that bad, but something like that. <laughs> and we're going around the table and it gets this one guy and he goes, I don't really pray or read my Bible or anything. I'm doing good if I can get to church. Honestly, I don't really think I understand the question how I'm doing spiritually. I don't really know what that means. And it was like grace... <laughs> just fell on the table and all of a sudden I was embarrassed by my answer because this guy (laughs) he acts us more authenticity (laughs) than I knew how to even get to and it was like all Jesus was waiting for that night was for somebody to be real and the whole conversation changed Everything everything in the room seemed to change
I'm going to put an addendum in the tape that my voice was cracking because of the cold. <laughs> I want to close with this. I'm not even going to set it up much. Other than to say that this is from the children's book, The Velveteen Rabbit. Anybody read it? What is real? Asked Rabbit one day when he was laying side by side with the horse near the nursery fender before Nana came in to tidy up the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you or a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you are made, said Skin Horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just plays with you, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, asked Rabbit. Sometimes, said Skin Horse, for he was always truthful. But when you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, Rabbit asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said Skin Horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real... Most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out. And you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. <laughs>